Welcome to this APTA podcast. I'm Michelle Vanderhoff. May is National Mental Health Awareness Month. According to the National Council on Behavioral Health, nearly one in five U.S. adults experience some sort of mental illness. In this episode, we will be discussing how the mind and body intersect in the healing process and how physical therapists and physical therapist assistants can provide appropriate and sensitive care to patients experiencing mental health issues. Now I'd like to welcome our guests. Today we are joined by APTA members, Sarah Wenger, PT, DPT, Andra DeVote, PT, MPH, and by APTA staff member, Hadia Green-Guerrero, PT, DPT. Sarah Wenger is professor at Drexel University. She also is a board certified specialist in orthopedic physical therapy. Sarah provides pro bono physical therapist services at Stephen and Sandra Scheller 11th Street Family Health Services, an interprofessional community-based federally qualified health center where she enjoys working with people who have chronic medical, social, behavioral, and environmental complexities and teaching students how to care for patients with complex needs. Her treatment focuses on patient education and building self-efficacy to empower patients to manage their chronic conditions as independently as possible. As part of an interprofessional team, Wenger developed a chronic pain clinical reasoning model and a psychoeducation program. Andra DeVote is a physical therapist, yoga instructor, educator, and the owner of Insight Physio, a small physical therapy practice near Seattle, Washington. Studying public health at University of Washington profoundly changed her approach to physical therapist practice, to viewing patient care through the lens of the stress response. Her areas of expertise are women's health, chronic pain, and trauma-informed care. Andrew collaborates with organizations in her community to develop curricula and give presentations on the stress response and social determinants of health. Most recently, she co-authored a chapter in a forthcoming book titled Integrative Rehabilitation Practice, the Foundations of Whole Person Care for Health Professionals. And Tadia Green-Guerrero is Senior Practice Specialist at APTA and a board-certified clinical specialist in sports physical therapy. Thank you all for being here. Tadia, let's start off with physical therapist scope of practice. PTs obviously focus primarily on physical health, but what do PTs need to know when working with patients with mental health comorbidities or facing significant adversity? Hi, Michelle. Thanks for that question and thank you for the warm um, welcome. I'm really happy to be here and have this discussion with the elite panel that we have. Um, so I'm going to start by first stating the American Physical Therapy Association's um, stance or position on this, which uh, most recently was brought to the House of Delegates in the year 2020. And it really begins with a statement that is broad and addresses society stating that the American Physical Therapy Association supports interprofessional collaboration at the organizational and individual levels to promote research, education, policy, and practice in both behavioral and mental health to enhance the overall health and well-being of society consistent with APTA's vision. And so what does that general um, statement means? And when you're talking about the individual physical therapist and how they interact with their clients and or patients. And it further just states that physical, behavioral, and mental health are inseparably interconnected 
within overall health and well being. So that means it's within the scope of physical therapist practice to screen for and address behavioral and mental health conditions in patients, clients, and populations. So this would include things such as consultations, referrals, and co-management with licensed health services providers in the prevention and management of behavioral and mental health conditions. And I think it further um, addresses a piece of the pie of health disparities, right? Because if you leave that part out in your, leave out the mental and behavioral aspect of your care with someone, um, you may interpret what your, the progress a person's making or lack thereof um, based on things that are inaccurate or suppositions. And so being able to incorporate this in the holistic approach to a person's care gets at some of those things that fall in the buckets of social determinants of health or inequities in that person's life that actually may contribute to how they show up in the clinic. Interesting. Sarah, Andrea, do you also have thoughts on that? Yeah, I can add some thoughts to that. This is Sarah. Thanks for the introduction. And I am also pleased to be here with all, all of you. Um, I, I think when we're talking about um, when we're talking about mental health, one of the things that we have to consider is, is mental health as a barrier to what we're doing. So part of our job is to evaluate someone, suggest a plan of care, and execute that plan of care in partnership with our patient. And if that isn't going well, if we're having difficulty engaging our patient in a plan of care and engaging them in activities that we feel are going to make them better or have a good chance of making them better, there are multiple potential barriers to that, but our job is to assess those barriers. And sometimes those barriers do track back to mental health issues or um, social determinants or a whole large variety of things. But if we're not paying attention to that and versed in those areas, then we're going to have a very difficult time working around barriers to achieve our goals with patients. Thanks, Sarah and Hadia. This is Andra speaking. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad that this first question, both of you mentioned the social determinants of health. Um, and I just want to add that the best way I've learned over the years um, to navigate these complexities is through the lens of the stress response. And um, the stress response is well within our scope of practice as PTs. And if we can adopt a stress response lens for looking at autonomic nervous system regulation, then it opens up um, a much broader um, range of thinking about what could be causing a dysregulated autonomic nervous system, what social conditions uh, whether they be current or historical, could be causing a person to um, experience undue stress um, and allostatic load that we know uh, causes so much wear and tear on the body. So all of the ranges of the autonomic nervous system from the fight or flight response to the freeze or submit response, there's a huge range there that is normal, but it can become really poorly regulated. And we can assess that. We can see where a patient might be dysregulated in that 
autonomic nervous system response, and then set a goal that our treatment will prioritize safety for that patient, will prioritize regulation, and that we can do our best in patient care to not, um, not cause our patients to need to use habitual self-protective responses. Um, and if we learn how to recognize if that's happening, then we can include other professionals. We can make referrals. We can be part of a bigger team and not compartmentalize our patients into just physical ailments or psychological ailments, but to actually treat the whole person and, and um, the whole person who walks in the door and not just this slice of their experience. Thanks to all of you. That was a very interesting beginning to the discussion. Um, how important is it, uh, Andra, for PTs to screen for mental health comorbidities? Well, I think we should be doing it all the time. Um, I think it should be in our back pocket all the time, not just first visit, not just with some intake questionnaire that we may or may not decide to give. Um, there are questionnaires that can be effective as screening tools. Personally, I don't use any, um, any questionnaires. I just use direct inquiry um, and I do it over time. Uh, I take my time with it. I try not to overwhelm patients, try not to jump in and um, ask for some of their, uh, their hardest stories. Um, I, don't, I don't feel like we need to know details of somebody's story in order to assess what they're experiencing in the present moment. So, um, in my general medical history intake form, I ask simple question. The last two questions I ask are, please rate the current level of stress in your life. And then the next question is, please rate your ability to cope with stress. And those are simple. And that's a um, really helpful, those, those are two really helpful questions for letting me know what do I need to be aware of? Um, and I also include some developmental history questions such as childhood illnesses, were they born prematurely, did they have significant adversity. Um, so those things are going to tip me off to then what I want as my skills of assessing their body, their breathing, their speech. So this leads me into assessing behavior, things like somebody holding their breath. Are they speaking rapidly? Um, how is their recall of their history and their story? Um, how is their sensory awareness? Um, are their behaviors defensive, um, perhaps aggressive, or do they demonstrate like resignation? Resignation, like, you know, um, do what you have to do. Um, just sort of giving giving their power over to the practitioner. So those are behavioral things that are all part of our screening. And I think as PTs, we are screening all the time. And it might be that our first visit, second visit, third visit came and went, and, and we didn't catch on. We didn't notice something. So that's why it's always every visit screening for behaviors or physical um, and physiological 
responses in the body that might indicate that this person is experiencing stress. And that can look like a very um, hyper aroused, um, activated stress response, but it could also look like very hypo aroused, deactivated stress response. And we can learn the details of that. Um, Andrew, that was a fantastic introduction. And I'll just add to it, although I feel like I'm going to say the same thing you're saying in slightly different words. But um, I, I also don't use a lot of screening. I do use the Promise 29, which has a couple of questions about anxiety, depression, fatigue, sleep. It, it covers a lot of different areas. And that does clue me in a little bit to um, be a little bit more observant. But I think really the important piece here is that the default, as, as uh, Andrew was saying, is to be observant all the time. Back pocket, perhaps front pocket, this, these skills should be right there. Um, so, and, and to build on, on what Andrew was saying about observing behavior, I think, I think we're, most of us are pretty good at observing behavior, but we have to observe and then integrate and respond to that, right? So I, I think what I see a lot when I see people not doing this well, I feel like what I see is people noticing that somebody's withdrawn or noticing that somebody's angry or aggressive or nervous or anxious but then sort of plowing forward with their evaluation and not accommodating or changing based on those observations. So we're talking about you know, if somebody is withdrawn um, or resigned, as, as uh, Andrew was talking about, you know, that might be somebody that we want to spend a little bit more time on instead of berating them with questions. Maybe we want to spend some time engaging them and making sure that our questions are sort of sucking them into the interaction and the conversation and um, that we're setting up our interaction in an empowering way that's that's drawing that person into a more active role in their care. Um, if we have somebody who's nervous or anxious or scared or angry, which those things sometimes look like too, right, um, that you know, are we pausing and taking some time to, to create an environment that's a little bit more comfortable for that person? I mean, any kind of discomfort, that's something we should be responding to and trying to create a more comfortable environment. And, and I agree wholeheartedly that we do not need to know why somebody is uncomfortable. I mean, they could be uncomfortable because of something that happened long in the past in their childhood, recent experiences, or just you know, a previous experience with PT. It can be any number of different things. And I don't think it's even our, it's, it's not our business or important for us to know all the details of the why, but it is absolutely our business and, and what I consider to be an essential skill set for us to be able to notice and respond in a way that um, pulls the, the relationship between us and the patient, our rapport between um, ourselves and our patient to a place that's healthy and that moves forward towards a point of healing. And, you know, the, the, we're walking towards healing and we're bringing the patient with us in a way that's healthy, constructive, and um, engaging. Thank you so much, Sarah. Boy, um, that really brought up some thoughts for me about barriers to PTs doing that. Um, 
you really make me think about the pressure that I know I feel. I'm sure most PTs feel this, especially those who are billing insurance, um, where we have a limited number of visits, where we are trying to document uh, steady progress towards goals um, that is somehow supposed to happen in a linear fashion, uh, right? (laughs) It doesn't happen in a linear fashion. Humans aren't linear. And so um, if, if we can prioritize safety for our patients, and I don't just mean like fall prevention safety, I mean safety for their nervous system so that they can spend their visit with their PT with a well-regulated nervous system and not needing to cope with either extreme hypervigilance, sympathetic nervous system arousal, or shutdown, extreme parasympathetic um, hypoarousal. If we can prioritize that that's what we want for their visit is for them to still stay well-regulated so that all the other functions of their body have that optimal, those optimal conditions, right? inflammation, muscle tone, heart rate, respiration, all of that, that we know leads to healing, um, then we're, we're very likely to have to change our pacing of what we do. We might not even get through a full eval because we might realize that somebody is triggered just in beginning to tell us their story. And if we, like you said, Sarah, if we don't respond to what we see by being willing to adapt and to change uh, what we expect to finish in one visit in order to ensure that priority that that person feels safe and as well regulated as possible, then um, we're just like pushing through, we're just plowing through and not, not tending to the healing that they need in that time. So I, I wonder if Sarah, at your, um, in your school, if, this is being taught, I'm, I'm sure you are, but if PTs are being given this permission and being um, taught now how to document this so that we can feel good about our decisions in a visit that might not be leading to that linear um, trajectory, um, but acknowledging that the up and down is okay and it's what the patient needed in that visit. Of course, I do talk about that with my students, and I I have a little what to do with a complicated patient cheat sheet for them to take into the clinic with them that essentially emphasizes, you know, building rapport and getting a history and sort of getting your foundation laid before you launch into doing a super specific exam of whatever joint or whatever complaint they're coming in for. Um, I do talk to them a lot about um, functional goals. So so like patient education goals and behavioral-based goals, as opposed to, you know, are you stronger? Is your balance better? Not to say that those aren't also important, but um, looking at, so if somebody um, cleans their entire house and has a big giant pain flare-up, well, you can make your goal that you're going to pace better, right? So how do you measure that goal. Well, if somebody, if you're taking a very good subjective history when somebody comes in and they come in and they say, you know, I started to vacuum my living room. I got about halfway through and I thought, 
I'm going to pay for this tomorrow. So I stopped. I just left my vacuum there and I rested. And then I picked up my vacuum the next day and I did the rest of the, well, then we can document that is achieving the goal. They're executing behavior change and we can document that, but you have to be good at taking subjective histories and asking your patients to tell you what they're doing and explain that. But I think those are legitimate ways of tracking progress. And if you think about, I mean, if you, you know, even if you're thinking sort of fiscally along the lines of an insurance company, that certainly is, is worth the investment, right? So if somebody is engaging in behaviors that are less likely to flare up their symptoms and less likely to make them worse, that's going to save an insurance company money. So, you know, even if we're taking our focus away from making our patient better, which is, of course, where my focus you know, I think our primary focus should be there. But even if we're thinking about it fiscally, a patient who feels better and functions better should cost less money than a patient who is not well-managed and is having a really hard time functioning and a really hard time managing their symptoms. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, that's very interesting. And I a related question uh, for Andra. Um, can stress or adverse social conditions or adverse childhood experiences impact a patient's symptoms and recovery? Oh, Michelle, that's a huge question. My short two-word, three-word answer to that is yes. Allostatic load is what I want to say. Allostatic load is, in a nutshell, the wear and tear on our body. And um, maybe I'll just tell this actually in the form of a story. When um, the first week that I was in my graduate program, getting my master's in public health, we watched a video, a documentary called The Great Leveler. And The Great Leveler is um, about the British civil servants research study on um, hierarchy and health. And it was a study that looked at these physiological markers of health in high-ranking civil servants and low-ranking civil servants. And I sat there watching this documentary just kind of with my mind being blown because I had been a PT for almost 10 years at that time when I went and got my master's in public health. And here I am sitting in a class learning what at that moment felt like the most important thing that I could be taught about understanding chronic illness, the stress response and inequality, um, injustice and the effect it has on the body. So that takes me back to your question, Michelle, about things like um, extreme adversity. And, and shortly after, um, Watching that video, I learned about the ACEs study, so the Adverse Childhood Experiences study, which I hope that everybody who hears this um, podcast will go and, if you don't already know about it, learn about it. Um, it's a landmark study that was done in the 1990s through the Kaiser um, Healthcare System in California. Um, it was a huge sample size, like I'm going to say 40,000 something people that were asked. Um, to rate whether or not they had exposure to these 10 types of adversity. Um, and it's family and household dysfunction. So it was everything um, from neglect to abuse, um, 
uh, and and then they were studied to see what the long-term health effects were of exposure to adversity. So a score of zero to 10 was given. And um, the results are very, very impressive that exposure to um, childhood adversity, it has a dose response relationship to the amount of adverse health outcomes later in life. And the mechanism for that is the um, extreme or pervasive activation of the stress response. So a stress response that is continually needed in order to manage, in order to survive adversity uh, will create wear and tear on the body in so many systems. The musculoskeletal system is one of them digestive system, immune response. I mean, you name it, cardiovascular. Um, so that's the, the mechanism by which some people will experience uh, a more prolonged or severe illness, more disability, um, less resilience, uh, a slower immune response. And these things multiply and they mix in with social circumstances and can create circumstances where um, that extreme stress response leads to learning difficulties, leads to relationship difficulties, leads to missed work, um, which then leads to more adverse social conditions, which then leads to more health problems. So when you ask that question, Michelle, it's like a huge can of worms opens up where we can really start to see the connections between social conditions, the stress response, and health. And that is true for every patient we're seeing, whether their, their social conditions are very protective and they experience pretty good health and resilience and quick recovery, quick response to physical therapy, or whether their social conditions uh, were pretty adverse and they're gonna have um, perhaps a slower recovery and more complicated health conditions. Interesting, that could be a whole podcast in and of itself. Absolutely. <laughs> Sarah, did you have anything to add on that? I think, um, I think what I'm going to point out since Andrew covered it so well is if you think about the two sort of extremes of patients she described. So she described a patient with cushy social circumstances who is going to come in and get better and maybe not have a lot of comorbidities. And she described a patient with, you know, a lifetime of stress response and allostatic load that has created someone who may not respond as well to therapy, may not get better as quickly, may have more comorbidities, may be more vulnerable to developing chronic pain. And I, I think when we understand the physiology and both, both the, the physiological and the sociological background um, and, and causes of those two different presentations, I, I think it helps us walk ourselves back from biases and assumptions, which I feel are commonly lavished on the person who's presenting with a lot of comorbid, you know, with like a whole lot of problems and 
isn't getting better. And I think about the kinds of things that are said within the healthcare system about patients who present that way. And I think about the amount of effort the healthcare system spends on one of these patients versus the other. So here's a patient who wants to get better, is motivated to get better. So all the healthcare providers are going to sink their time into them um, versus a patient who is struggling to get better. You know, they get labels like, oh, they don't want to get better or they, you know, I told them to do this, that, and the other home exercise program, and they didn't do it. So, you know, I can't help them if they're not going to help themselves without recognizing that there are a lot of barriers and uh, both from a sociological, but also a physiological standpoint for that person to execute a plan of care. So um, one of the things that you know, I teach a lot and I like to talk about a lot is if, if you are noticing someone who isn't engaging in their care, who isn't following your plan of care, who has a lot of barriers, our job then is to, that's the person who needs more of our time and attention, right? That's someone who we need to spend extra time with to help them out, someone who's struggling. You know, I feel the same way about education. You know, I feel like in the healthcare system, we spend a lot of time educating patients who are coming in with, you know, they've done their Google search and they've read a couple articles and they're interested and engaged. And so we'll have a long conversation with them versus our patients who, you know, sort of don't have basic knowledge of biology and physiology. And we spend less time, you know, if our diagnosis is our patient doesn't have information, then our treatment should certainly be education. If our diagnosis is that a patient isn't engaging in their care, then our treatment should be some kind of engagement practices. And I think I think understanding all of the things that Andra was just talking about helps us arrive at that kind of decision making. Thank you for that. And I also wanted to ask you, Sarah, about your um, on the ground experience with trauma informed care at Drexel's pro bono clinic. Yeah, so at 11th Street, we have some 11th Street's an interdisciplinary clinic. So we've got a lot of different disciplines there. And the whole clinic is um, trauma informed, or we do our best to be trauma informed. So that means a lot of different things. So, so it means that our environment is comfortable and welcoming and, and hearkening back to what Andrew was saying about safety. You know, we try to create an entire physical environment that feels safe. We have artwork that was made by patients hanging on the wall. You know, it is a welcoming kind of home feeling and, or homey feeling environment um, as opposed to stark and formal and rigid. Um, we do um, the best we can to provide some flexibility. So anytime we can do drop-in or open hours, whenever that's feasible, instead of, you know, rigid appointments where if you're late, you have to be rescheduled or if you're, you miss three appointments and now you're not allowed to come back, like these sort of punitive um, practices that we have, we try to really steer clear of those as much as we can. Every single person that works at 11th Street, it does not matter what their job is, every person in that building, um, when we interview and hire for any position, um, people are told that they are part of a patient's good outcome. 
you know, if they walk in the door, it's, you know, you could be the security guard, you can be sweeping the floor or emptying the trash. Everyone in that building is part of creating a safe environment and part of somebody's good outcome. Um, so everybody is engaged in helping people, helping patients when they come in, you know, feel welcome and feel comfortable. Um, so that's sort of our general, like, overall concept. Um, and then we really try to carry trauma-informed care into our individualized practices. And I think we've touched on so many of the principles already, but, you know, noticing how somebody might be feeling, noticing people's behavior, responding to it. If you are really um, engaging people in their plan of care, um, addressing things that are a concern for our patients, asking them what their concerns are so that we can address them, um, making sure that we're not just throwing a textbook at somebody, that we're really adapting, we're using our textbook knowledge, of course, but we're constantly adapting it to who's sitting in front of us and what that person needs. And we, again, we don't need to know that somebody has had trauma to use trauma-informed care. So we take a um, like universal precautions kind of approach. You never know who has had trauma. You don't know what's up in people's lives, right? So you should just, just like you wear gloves because somebody might have an infection, you should use trauma-informed care because somebody might have trauma. And when you're talking about creating a safe, comfortable environment, building a healthy therapeutic rapport, um, engaging patients in their care, honoring patients' um, wishes, concerns, um, working on things that are salient to them. Well, you know, this sounds like something everybody wants, right? Um, and so it doesn't only, trauma-informed care isn't only for people who've experienced trauma. Everybody benefits from trauma-informed care. I love that analogy uh, about the gloves. That's a great one. Um, Andrew, I was wondering if you could share some examples of patient stories that influenced your um, change in approach to physical therapy. Um, you shared the you shared earlier about your um, shift um, while you were uh, in grad school, and I just wonder uh, if there are any specific stories that stick out in your mind about. Um, the context of trauma and the body's response to, to stress. Yeah, um, honestly, they happen every week. Um, I mean, it's amazing. As soon as my mind started to look at things differently, um, every week of work just became so eye-opening to me. And um, I got my master's degree in public health in 2005. So it's been a lot of years now that I've been practicing very differently. And I'm just still on a weekly basis um, in awe of what I see and feel um, when I work with patients and I see my work um, and their experience through this lens. Um, but, you know, when I think of story, I will forever be touched by this one story. Many years ago, I was sitting with a, a woman, my first visit with her, 
very obese woman with lots of uh, pain, multiple sites of pain and very compromised mobility. And um, she was very well aware of her ACEs and her trauma. And she educated me. Um, and I am deeply grateful for all the patients that have educated me. Um, and she, she pointed, she kind of, you know, pointed her hands to her body and said to me, well, this is my armor. And, um, and she said, I've, I've been through hell and this is the armor that I've put on over the years. And I can feel myself, even my, my breath choking a little bit right now, even just telling you that story because it just stopped me in my tracks and I felt such um, profound reverence for her and her story and what she's had to do to cope through her life. And um, that that was her survival mechanism. It is one of the ways that her body coped. And um, it really, really um, diminished, it obliterated the, any, any um, tendency towards shame or blame that I may have felt for her. And I'm human. I have felt uh, those feelings towards patients before. And I just was astounded at how differently I felt towards her and how much I wanted to care for her and understand her and help her from where she is today. I didn't want to dive into her story, nor did I need to for me to move forward understanding where she's at and what her coping skills were. Um, and there's countless, countless stories like this. That was just the first one that hit me over the head like a ton of bricks. Um, being a women's health physical therapist, I work with women who have chronic pelvic pain, who have experienced sexual assault, who have been abused as children, who have had traumatic childbirth experiences, um, a lot of traumatic medical experiences, and are often put through the biomedical model and put through testing and pelvic exams and biopsies and more testing and more medications, um, more scans and um, not finding a solution to their pelvic pain. And um, what I so often discover when I finally see these women is that they haven't um, addressed or, or realized their autonomic nervous system dysregulation, which affects muscle tone, not just muscle tone, but the inflammatory response. And as soon as you start acknowledging that and helping patients feel it, sense it, understand it, and regulate it, their symptoms can start to change. And it is so much um, uh, easier for them than going through a whole bunch of medical procedures. I'm not saying those medical procedures are never indicated, but to do them without also tending to the state of that person's nervous system is quite unfortunate because the state of their nervous system can affect all of those symptoms. Um, so yes, so many patients have taught me so much and I am very grateful and uh, for all of them. Kadia, I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on how to discuss these kinds of sensitive topics with patients. Uh, 
this has been a riveting um, conversation and the type of conversation you want to listen to again and get exactly the points that have been shared. And I, I think that uh, for me, it brought up a case that I had with pediatrics and we haven't talked a lot about pediatrics as a patient, as opposed to what happened to you when you were a child, right? So one of my first patients um, in early intervention were a set of twins, a girl and a boy, and they were actually referred to physical, for physical therapy services for, their, um, for having obesity, at, which at the time was kind of novel because um, for the most part, people didn't work upstream um, in early intervention, you have to actually qualify and have like at least a 30% deficit compared to your peers to even qualify for these services, um, which is a whole nother conversation. But their obesity in, in, its, in and of itself is a stress, right? It's a stress on your physical and physiological being. It's also a stress because people treat you differently based on that. Um, and depending on your culture, and in this case, the family was um, Afro-Latina, um, that comes with either affection and or teasing, whatever it is that you're, is in your immediate family system, let alone when you actually leave the house. So this case is zero to, um, zero to three years of age, and I was with them basically from um, maybe two, two to three years old but still have contact with them and they're now 16. Um, but their mother also was 15. And their grandmother um, was around my age at the time, which was about 30 or 31 as well. So there was a lot of um, their interaction that was um, seemingly stress related and stressful, right? So that actually began in utero, right? So it's not even just as you come at, we often talk about the things that happen to people in life as we know it uh, or see it out. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that's happening to you before you're even born that manifests itself um, when you come out and there. So their mother also had obesity. And so it wasn't a surprise once I met her that she would as well. The grandmother did not. Um, the mother also had bipolar um, and I didn't know her diagnosis, but I can, I was able to observe her interactions with the kids and really meet them where they were. And actually um, being upfront and honest and allowing people to come to you with whatever it is they wanna share to the points that were made earlier by Sarah and Andrew earlier that the why doesn't necessarily matter. Like I don't need to know why the mother has obesity. Um, I don't necessarily need to know why that she's yelling at the kids in a way that may not be beneficial for them um, to transition to therapy, but I do need to receive them um, where they're at. And so for me, um, coming into the situation with a non-judgmental lens was important, um, acknowledging where they could actually do any of the changes that they, um, I might recommend, like if they had, they were using whole milk and to see if they could slowly transition to a less fattier milk. That it, those type of things that we introduce into a family system is stressful in and of itself, especially if you're in a situation where a person 
is already on a limited income because they are um, getting their food source from a publicly afforded situation. So we actually went to therapy together and incorporated that as part of our services. So the children spent mo so much time inside that I thought it was important to go outside. So we went with mom to her psychological treatment. I've met both her social worker and I met her um, psychologist. And while she went to therapy, we played in the park in Morningside Park. So that's the way we ho holistically approached this particular family, right? Even though I was originally going in for the children who had obesity and, and all that that comes with. Yeah, I'd like to stem off that um, because at 11th Street, we also take a very, fan we, instead of saying patient-centered care, we like the term family-centered care better, however family is defined, and we're not uptight about that. Um, and I, I think, you know, the other thing that we do at 11th Street, which um, Hadia is, is talking about, is interprofessional care. And I, I think I have learned more about being attentive to mental health and um, being effective at building positive, fruitful, therapeutic relationships I have learned the most just from working in collaboration with my mental health colleagues and sort of watching them in action and having them watch me and advise me and give me feedback and really collaborating with them. I, I think, you know, I certainly have done a lot of reading and a lot of studying on mental health, but I think really getting that real-time collaboration with mental health providers and real-time feedback from them has just been such a, a valuable resource for me. And I've learned so much. And I also have had just the pleasure of observing how pleasant that is for the patient. Like, I, I feel like when I'm here doing therapy and the mental health providers over there doing mental health, and we're not really communicating, because I've definitely done that too, um, you know, so the patient's getting all the things they need. They're checking all the boxes of all the things. But the difference between doing that and, and really being in communication with the mental health provider and sort of working as a team, me, the mental health provider, whoever else is involved, and the patient, where everybody knows everybody else's page and is sort of coordinating what we're doing, the impact on the patient, it's it's so much better. And in the end, even though it takes some time to reach out and communicate in the beginning, I think in the end, it's so much more efficient um, to have better coordinated care. Can I just add there? Um, I, I can't emphasize enough what Sarah just said um, and Hadia as well about collaborating with mental health professionals, um, both on patient care, but also just generically, like generally speaking. So in my office, I share an office space with a psychologist. Um, so we're uh, two PTs, a PT assistant and a psychologist. And um, it's amazing. It's amazing to be able to collaborate on patient care. Patients feel really held. Like they, they know that we are communicating um, they can discuss their PT session with their mental health provider and the mental health provider will understand because we've spoken and vice versa. Um, but also I can ask my psychologist colleague questions, just general questions, just to help me understand 
where, um, you know, how am I perceiving something? How am I understanding something? Am I, am I off track? Am I reacting to something? Um, understanding my, my own blind spots. And um, I just, I think we, we can't collaborate enough because unfortunately we're already so compartmentalized. I mean, even just the difference between PT and OT is like, what? So, you know, we're so compartmentalized professionally um, that the more we can build bridges between our professions and learn uh, from these other similar professions, what we don't know, what we might be missing and where our blind spots are. Thank you for this wonderful discussion. Um, very, this has been just very enlightening. And I was wondering, Hadia, uh, do you have um, a suggestion for where PTs can go to learn more about the topic of mental health? Yeah, and I'll be really brief just in case I missed something that uh, Sarah and Azar want to add. But one of the first places as a physical therapist um, you could start uh, would be the American Physical Therapy Association's website at APTA.org and just type in mental health and you will be able to pull up anything that is related to physical therapists in the space of um, mental health and well-being. Of course, there are our um, other resources like your um, the American Public Health Association, the American Psychological Association. So those are other areas um, that I would say are good start points. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for participating today. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and experience. For more APTA podcasts like this one, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or visit apta.org slash podcasts. I'm Michelle Vanderhoff. Thanks for listening.